Good morning. Welcome to Charity Baptist Church. We want to extend a special welcome to those of you that are tuning in on Facebook. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. This morning we're going to be starting in verse 12 and working our way to verse 36. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about a, a few dates that I have circled on the calendar uh, that I'm really excited about. Uh, the first one is actually this Wednesday, July 1st. Major League Baseball is coming back. They're going to restart their spring training in hopes of, of having opening day on July 23rd. And they finally settled this, this two-month labor dispute that they were going through. And, you know, and some of their discussions were, were rightfully so centered on, on health and safety protocols. But most of their discussions were centered on dollars and cents, which, which wasn't a great look. But in the middle of this nationwide financial crisis that we're all feeling to some extent. You have these millionaire players and these billionaire owners arguing over revenue splits. I mean, it's just, it's just not a good look. I mean, read the room, guys. But either way, I'm excited for the return of professional baseball, if that ends up happening. Uh, the second date is July 19th. That's three weeks from today. My family will hopefully be heading down to St. Augustine for our vacation. Um, again, the, the coronavirus is, is surging in the sun, sunshine state, so we will see. Um, and then the final date is August 7th. Do you know what happens on August 7th? Well, Lord willing, on August 7th, Lowndes County Schools will reopen, and two of my three children will go back to school. Hopefully. Maybe. You know, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, so I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but I'm looking forward to getting back into a routine because during, you know, the first two or three weeks of, of shelter in place, uh, Lacey and I did a good job of managing our time. We were very intentional with our time. I mean, we finished the, the daily school assignments. We planned fun activities. We watched movies. We exercised in the field behind the church. We cooked meals together. And we divided chores, and, and we were operating like this finely tuned machine. But unfortunately, the end of March and, and all of April felt like a, a four-year period. I mean, days just dragged and dragged and dragged. And, and this extended summer vacation just really started to kind of beat us down. And so these days, we have different sets of goals. You know, we really feel like now that if we can keep our three kids fed, bathed and rested that's a win and I know that doesn't sound like a whole lot but that's just where we're at right now if we can get those three things done we, we feel good about the day but but unfortunately even with these baseline bare minimum goals we find that these goals all intersect around the same time every day that between 5 and 7 p.m. we have dinner baths and bedtime all coming together and each one of our children has a part to play in this process as we cook dinner trip expresses him his impatience as we eat dinner chandler expresses her displeasure and as we prepare for bed parker expresses her worries and then in between those three things we have bath time which is this sort of wild card scenario where any kid can, can flip out on, on any given night. But when the clock strikes three in the wash or five, excuse me, in the Washburn household, 
Lacey and I both have the same thought. Ugh, the hour has come. Or the dreaded hour has come. And it comes every single day, and we know it's coming, and we are, are sad and distraught when it comes. And so, as we've been working through the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus reference an approaching hour on several occasions. We saw it first in chapter 2 when Jesus' and disciples were attending a family wedding and Christ's mother alerted him about a major party foul. She said, Jesus, they have no wine. He responded, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then in chapter 4, when Jesus and the woman at the well were discussing the proper location for worship, she posed a question. She said, the, the Samaritans, my people, we worship on this mountain, but the Jews, your people, say that we should worship in Jerusalem. Who's right? Now, where should we worship God? And, and he responded, woman, sensing a pattern there, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then in chapters 7 and 8, we see Christ boldly proclaim his mission from his heavenly Father, and the Jews attempt to arrest him twice. And in both cases, he escaped because John records that his hour had not yet come. And so we see this a few times through the first 11 chapters, that his hour is coming. His hour has not yet come. You know, John keeps reminding us that the cross is on the horizon. The cross is around the corner. The cross is, is coming soon. And then suddenly when we get to chapter 12, the verb tenses change. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As Jesus entered Jerusalem for the Passover, the cross shifted from this future prospect to a present reality. The hour had come. And since we're working with a larger section of Scripture this morning, we're going we're gonna to break it out into three smaller sections. And so we're going to start with verses 12 through 19, where we'll see the arrival of the hour. Then we're going to look at verses 20 through 26. We see the significance of the hour. It's where Jesus explains why the hour is of the utmost importance. And then in verses 27 through 36, we'll see the responses to the hour, the four responses to this all-important hour. So let's start reading in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd had come to the feast that had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey co donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and, he, and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised him from the dead and continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. 
look, the world has gone after him. So before Jesus solemnly declared in verse 23, the hour has come, we see his entrance into the holy city for his final Passover. And we see that this event is marked with substantial excitement. You know, when I consider the, the triumphal entry, I always have these mixed emotions because on one hand, we have this, this beautiful, glorious picture of the nation of Israel embracing Jesus and they're waving their palm leaves and they're, and they're shouting out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're celebrating him and they're praising him. But on the other hand, we know where the story is going. We know these same Jews who were yelling out, Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Sunday are going to have a very different opinion about Jesus on Friday. They're going to make this 180 degree turn from praising him to screaming crucify him over the next few days. And so when we know the future, it can it can skew our view of the present. But we still need to recognize that the triumphal entry is a defining moment in Christ's ministry. According to first century historian Josephus, there was an estimated 2.7 million Jews in town for Christ's final Passover. You know, most biblical commentators cast doubt about his math, but the primary point remains Jerusalem was bursting at the seams, and most of the crowd was there to see Jesus. The crowd was still buzzing about the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 18 says the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard he had done this sign. So they waved their, their palm branches, which were a symbol of, of messianic hope and they shouted hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord even the king of israel which was mostly adapted from psalm 118 you know you may remember back in chapter 6 that after christ fed the 5000 he sensed the crowd was was plotting to to take him and and to force him to be their king and and he just withdrew from the crowd John records that he, he went to the mountain by himself. That he moved away from those that wanted to make him king. And now in chapter 12, we see him moving in the opposite direction. So as the crowd was building in Jerusalem and, and buzzing, he finds this young donkey to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah 9 that says the Messiah would come, your king would come, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Christ was deliberately and intentionally presenting himself as the Messiah. And as he does this, we see stereotypical reactions from the usual suspects. The crowd was celebrating it. The disciples were puzzled by it. And the Pharisees were, were furious about it. In verse 19, we see the frustration of the religious leaders. So you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And once again, the, the Pharisees serve as these accidental prophets here because, you know, understand when they say the world was coming after him, when they say the world, they just mean a lot of people. It's just kind of a general term. This would be like if you went to Lowe's and everybody in Lowndes County was there and you said, you come home and tell your spouse, man, the world was at Lowe's today. 
The world was at Lowe's. We understand, obviously, that the entire world is not packed into Lowe's on St. Augustine Road, right? This is, this is the way they're speaking. The world is coming after him. Look at these multitudes of people coming after him. But when they said that, they didn't realize that the world actually was coming after him. Because in verse 20, we see a few Gentiles come to meet with Jesus. So let's pick back up there. It says, Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to meet Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So second, we see the significance of the hour. Now throughout the, the Gospel of John, we've been making this, this, this slow and steady progression towards the cross, but the last two chapters have really picked up the pace. I mean, we're really picking up steam. We've logged several significant events. The end of chapter 11, the Sanhedrin made a formal plot to kill Jesus, which showed they'd officially moved from making empty threats to making genuine threats. In chapter 12, they, they wanted to kill Lazarus also, which, which shows the opposition of the gospel is, is growing. Uh, Jesus was anointed in Bethany, which prepared him for his burial. And Jesus participated in the triumphal entry, which marked the beginning of his final week of ministry. And then after all that, we see in verse 20 and 21 that some Greeks, some Gentiles, come to Philip and say, Sir, we wish to meet Jesus. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because Jesus is the only begotten Son who'd bring eternal life. He's the light of the world who came for Jews and Gentiles. He's the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He's the good shepherd who would call his sheep from a different sheepfold. You see, the curiosity of, of these Greek men should remind us that on Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he was the king of the Jews, but on Easter Sunday, when he rose from the grave, he was the king of the world. And so this is yet another confirmation for us that his hour has come. And so the Greeks approached Philip with their request, and, and Philip and, and Andrew relay the request to Jesus. And look at how Jesus answered them in verse 23. They, they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, there, there are a few guys from Greece that, that really want to meet you. You know, they've traveled a long way. Could, could we set up a, a meeting with them? Can you meet with them now? Can we do it later in the week? And Jesus simply responds, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And it seems a little bit like Jesus is just kind of blowing these Greeks off, right? Like if someone said they wanted to meet with you and you said, the hour has come for me to go get lunch and just exit that conversation. So, so it seems like he's, he's being a little bit rude, but he wasn't. 
he couldn't meet with them because he's on a tight schedule. He couldn't meet with them because some things were already in motion here. He couldn't meet with them because he's already on the road to glorification. Look at what he says when he continues in verse 24. He gives them this some hard truth. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So the glorification of the Son would only be fulfilled through the death of the Son. So Christ was saying, I will bear much fruit. I will, I will expand God's kingdom. I will bring Jews and Gentiles into God's family, but I can only bear this fruit. I can only do this work through dying on cross. And so if I leave my current path, if I change course, if I cater to the needs of every person seeking my attention and wanting a moment with me, I'll remain alone like a seed that never makes it out of the farmer's pocket. I must go in the ground so you can be saved. When I die on the cross, the Jews will be saved, the the Greeks will be saved. The Romans will be saved. All who believe in me will be saved. And so while the parable in verse 24 reveals truth about Jesus, the following verses provide truth about us. You know, as John Piper puts it, his dying for our salvation is also his design for our imitation. And here's the application for us is in verses 25 and 26. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So in verse 24, Christ says about himself, I'm heading to the cross. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die for you, but I will bear much fruit and I will be glorified and then in verses 25 and 26, he says, Come with me, follow me, serve me, abandon your life for me, die with me. And so this is, this is the paradox of following Jesus. This is the unpopular portion of the gospel. This is the immense pain and unspeakable joy that comes from taking the narrow path that we would hate our lives in this world so that we could keep our lives in eternity, that we would follow Jesus to the cross now so that we can join him in glory later, that we would be humble servants on earth and be honored guests in heaven. This is the significance of the hour that Christ was about to be glorified through death and that his followers would be justified through his righteousness and, and, and the weight of that moment, the, just the, the weight of, of everything that's happening here prompts a, a series of reactions that we see in this final section. So let's read it together. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. 
Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now this is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While you walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So in verses 27 through 36, we see the responses to the hour. After Jesus announced the, the arrival of the hour, he explained the significance of the hour. The final section provides the four responses to the hour. So let's look at these. The first one's in verse 27. The first response came from Jesus. And he simply said, Now my soul is troubled. You know, the world, the word troubled really doesn't do justice for the original. Greek. You know, when I see another Amazon package on my front porch, I'm a little troubled by that. A little troubled by my wife's shopping habits. And so, so this isn't this isn't really where Jesus is at in this moment. At least not the way that I, I'm thinking of trouble. I mean, he's not sitting in a corner, you know, biting his fingernails and just sort of shaky and anxious. I mean, no, a, a better understanding of of the wording here would be horror, a revulsion, a deep anguish. Remember that, that Christ is the God-man. He's, he's fully divine and he's fully human. So in his divinity, he had supernatural insight into exactly what was coming, to exactly what was going to happen to him over the next few days. And then in his humanity, he, he could feel every emotion, he could experience every pain. And so we have to ask here that, that why would Jesus, the one who tells us in Matthew 6, don't be anxious, now say, I'm troubled. You know, I, I'm struggling. I'm having problems here. I mean, why would the one who tells us don't worry about tomorrow seem so worried about, about Friday? You know, was Jesus afraid of, of death? Well, in a word, no. Christ wasn't afraid of death. When he sent out his 12 disciples in Matthew 10, he told them, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Christ didn't fear those who kill the body. He didn't fear the religious leaders of the Sanhedrin or Pilate. I mean, he stood toe-to-toe with all these men who basically held his life in their hands. So he didn't fear death. He feared his father's wrath. You know, Christ had a similar internal battle in the garden. As he sweat in blood, he prays to the Father, take this cup from me. Father, if if there's any other way, if there's any other route, if there's anything else that we can do, Take this cup from me. 
But then he submits, yet not my will, but yours be done. And so his, his humanity is floating the same thought in verse 27. What shall I say? What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? You know, he's wrestling with his father. Can, can we try something else? Is there any other way that we might could accomplish your purposes? And then he comes to the same place. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And so he's saying, Father, I'm troubled, I'm anguished, I'm, I'm tormented, I'm struggling, but I submit to your will. I, I follow your way. You know, we should always be careful in, in comparing how, how Christ suffered with how we suffer. And when I say we should be careful, I mean that we probably shouldn't do it very much at all. Um, but we do suffer. We do suffer in this life. You know, we, we do taste, we, we do drink from that cup from, from time to time. And uh, Friday night, Lacey and I were, were meeting with, a, with two couples over Zoom. We've been doing this, this uh, marriage uh, Bible study. And, and we were talking a little bit about, about suffering. And our family has, has certainly experienced you know, our fair share of suffering over the last 10 weeks or so. We lost my grandmother. We lost my uncle. We've experienced you know, tension with our extended family. And, and we've struggled you know, under my roof to find balance with, with marriage and parenting and, and ministry during the coronavirus pandemic. And, and so during our, our small group conversation, Lacey said... And one of her answers, in the face of difficulty, I've stopped asking God, what are you doing to me? And I've stopped asking, and I've started asking, God, what are you doing in me? Man, I, I fell in love all over again. You know? I mean, there's nothing better than being a preacher and being able to tell your wife, man, that'll preach, right? And just this beautiful truth. It's an incredible perspective. I mean, that, that, is, that is staring suffering in the face and saying, Father, your will be done. That, that's staring suffering in the face and saying, this hurts and, and I don't understand it, but, but Father, your will be done. That's trusting in the words of Romans 8.28 where the Apostle Paul reminds us that God is working all things together for your good and for His glory. You know, if you're in Christ, that promise is for you, so will you trust Him? When you're facing a tough situation, will you trust Him? When He leads you to conf confront a, a blind spot in your life, to confront a sin issue in your life, when He leads you to have a difficult conversation with your spouse when he leads you to practice accountability with your children, when he leads you to have a gospel conversation with your co-worker, when he leads you to give more of your income to your church, will you trust him? Will you say, Father, I don't see it. I, I don't understand it. I can't even begin to know what you're doing here, but I'll do it because 
I want you to be glorified because I, I, I trust you. So we have this first response from Jesus and, and his response is, is anguish. And then in verse 28, we get a second response. And this one comes from the Father. Verse 28 says, And a voice came from heaven, says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So, so Jesus tells the Father to, to glorify his name, and, and he responds, I, I've glorified it through the resurrection of Lazarus, and I'll soon glorify it again through the resurrection of you, Jesus. And so how is the Father glorified through the Son? The Father is glorified through the obedience of the Son. Now think about it this way. Say you have a teenage son, and, and you know, raising a teenager may be way in your past or, or way in your future, but for the sake of the exercise, you have a teenage son. And before your son leaves for prom, you give your son that, that final pep talk where you give him all the do's and don'ts, and, and it's mostly don'ts. And you say, when you go out tonight, I want you to have fun. But if your friends start drinking, you come home. If your friends go to that one lake house that's always unsupervised, you come home. If your friends start using vulgar language, you come home. If your friends start applying peer pressure to you of any kind, you come home. And if none of those things happen, have a great night, and your curfew is 10.30. Right? So you lay all that stuff out. And let's say that your son just goes against your wishes and he does all those things and more and he stumbles in your house at 3 o'clock in the morning. Is he honoring his father? Is he honoring his mother? No. Right? Absolutely not. But what if the son follows every instruction? What if he does everything that his, his father asks or his mother asks, even though his reputation takes a hit, even though he maybe loses a friend or two, even though his girlfriend leaves and goes to a party with another guy? Does he honor his father? Does he honor his mother? Yes. Because he showed how much he respected and valued his father's advice. He didn't like it. He didn't understand it. He probably recoiled against it a little bit, yet somewhere deep inside, he knew his father was only looking out for his best interest. This is how the obedience of the Son brings glory to the Father. So when God the Son willingly went to Calvary, God the Father was glorified. So the third response after we hear from the Son and we hear from the Father, the third response came from the spiritual realm. The crucifixion of Jesus set a series of major events into motion. And our passage hits on, on three of these things. The first was in verse 31. The world will be judged. It says, now is the judgment of the world. And we've talked in, in, in great detail. We've gone through the Gospel of John about how the Gospel of John is about belief. John explicitly says this towards the end of his book, that I wrote this so you might believe. 
We know that in John 3.17 that Christ didn't come to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through Him. So the, the primary purpose of the Gospel of John and the primary purpose of, of everything that, that God and, and Jesus are working together on here is, is for our salvation, not our condemnation. That, that, that Jesus went to the cross to save us, that John wrote this Gospel so we might believe and be saved through what Christ did on that cross. But make no mistake, the gospel divides humanity. Some will be saved by it. Others will be judged by it. The cross leaves no middle ground. There are only two groups at the end of the story. One group is yelling, crucify him. And another much smaller group is saying, I'm willing to die for him. There's, there's no middle ground in first century Christianity. And, and I would argue that there's no middle ground in 21st century Christianity. Listen, if, if Christ isn't the Lord of your life, if you aren't submitting to His will, if you aren't serving His purposes, if you aren't sharing His gospel, then you are rejecting Him. Listen to the greatest danger to the local church in the Bible Belt, to the church member, to the regular attender in the Bible Belt is a subtle, understated, quiet indifference to Jesus. It's saying, I could really go either way with Jesus. It's saying, I agree with most of Christ's teaching, but I have a few areas in my life that I don't want to turn over to him. That I don't want him to touch. It's saying, I don't have a problem with Jesus, but I don't really see a need for him either. Church, you can't be a lukewarm Christ follower. Either you love Jesus or you hate Jesus. Either you're for Jesus or you reject Jesus. And he'll be the judge of your life. Two, the ruler of the world will be cast out. Jesus was not claiming that, that Satan would no longer exist or no longer be active in the world. We obviously understand that that's not the case. But Christ was saying that on the cross, he will win a final decisive and complete victory over Satan and his minions. Now once I heard Kevin DeYoung described it this way in a sermon that is that, that Satan is, is, is a, like a dog chained up in the backyard. You know, he can yelp, he can bark, he can whine, but he can't really get to you. He's on, a, he's on a sturdy chain. Now, if you get close to him, he can bite you. And if you extend his chain, he can, he can wreak some havoc in your yard, he can, he can dig some holes and, and do some things. And if you feed him, he can grow stronger. But don't forget that he's chained up. Always recognize that he's chained up. The ruler of the world is cast out. And then third, Jesus will draw all people to himself. Verse 32 says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And for most of my Christian life, I've, I've taken verse 32 out of context a little bit. 
Um, I've always thought that Jesus was saying that, that if I'm lifted up, that if you know if I'm if I'm preached from the pulpit with clarity, if I'm shared with persistence, if I'm served with consistency, then I'll draw people to myself. And that if that if that if we as the body of Christ are doing the things that we're commanded to do and we're elevating Jesus, then Jesus will draw people to himself. And so I'm not saying that's not true because I believe that is. I mean, you've heard me say a number of times that if, if CBC is faithful, then, then Christ will be faithful. So I think the sentiment, the sentiment is true, but I don't think it's what Christ is, is saying here. You know, I'd, I'd agree with, with John Piper's assessment of 1232. He says when, when Christ died, when he was lifted up on the cross, he secured, obtained, and guaranteed the homecoming of his sheep. In other words, his death not only makes it possible to offer salvation freely to everyone, but his death also secures with certainty the bringing in of all his sheep. So when Christ's final hour came, the world was changed forever. The nations will be judged. The devil is defeated. The Son of God who was lifted up on the cross and into heaven will draw all of God's children to himself. And so, let's look at the final response to this crucial hour. So Jesus is in anguish. The Father's saying, I'll be glorified. We've got the, the, the spiritual realm crying out. And then the final response to this hour comes from you. In verse 34, we see how the crowd responds. They, they're, they're really confused. You know, we heard that the, the Christ would, would stay forever. Why must, the, why must the, the Son of Man be lifted up? Who's the Son of Man? And we see Jesus' parting words in verse 35 and 36. Says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So Christ said, my soul is in anguish. I'm troubled. The Father said, I'll be glorified. The spiritual realm said, judgment is coming. The ruler is cast out. People will be drawn to Christ. So church, what do you say? The hour has come. What did you say? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the obedience of the Son, that the Son glorified you by obediently going all the way to the cross, obediently sacrificing himself for us. And then being buried in a tomb and rising again on the third day. Father, we thank you for this gospel. And Father, I want to pray for everyone that's under the sound of my voice. And Lord, I, I know growing up in the Bible Belt, I've lived in the Bible Belt for three decades. I know how easy it is to, to develop this, this false sense of security. And just to feel like you, you've checked enough boxes 
you've done enough things, you've been to VBS, you've, you've served in this capacity, you've, you've done enough things for God to be pleased. Lord, I, I understand how easy that tendency is and how easily we can believe that lie. And so, Father, I ask this morning that you would, you would tear that down. Lord, if there's someone that, that in their heart believes that, that they're one of your children and they're not, Lord, reveal that to them. Lord, show them what they can't see. Show them what they can't see. Illuminate those blind spots in their faith. And Father, lead them to respond today. Because the hour has, has come and gone. Someday soon Christ will return again. So Lord, we've only got a finite amount of time to respond. So help us to respond in the way that you would have us to respond. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.